Welcome to Perspectives, SVB Security's signature podcast, where we share our insights and interview leaders across the industry to get their perspective on how they're driving innovation. We'll also be digging into the backstory to learn more about what has most influenced their success. Be sure to check out all episodes by SVB Securities. Hi, my name is Thad Davis. I'm a Senior Managing Director at SVB Securities, and I'm joined today by my friend and client, Seth Sternberg, co-founder and CEO of Honor Technologies. It's good to see you again. It's been a few months, Seth, so thanks for uh, taking the time to... I think this is actually our second podcast, actually, that you're going to be the guest of. So, no kidding. Uh, wow. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, a pleasure. So Seth and I have done a little bit of business together and I've been involved in some of the work that Seth's been doing, but it's been exciting to reach out to bring Seth onto the podcast here. And and frankly, what we're trying to do on the podcast, Seth, here is to bring your perspective. There's a large body of information about what Honor is doing, and we will hit on that a little bit, but it has a focus on founders and innovation, what drives the leaders behind who is shaping the innovation economy today. So we're going to start out with a little bit about your background, maybe some topics that haven't been hit on by others over time. You've taken quite the road, an entrepreneur's road, no question. But the first thing I wanted to kind of figure out, like you've been through, you had a great resume that goes from Yale, IBM, a stint at Stanford, shall we say, and then Mebo, Plaxo, Mebo, Google, and then on to where you're at now with the co-founders and, and Honor. But going into a deep dive, I'm going to take it all the way back. Tell me about your childhood, Seth. Where did you grow up? What is going on? What were you into as a kid? Were you a technologist by heart, an inquisitive person by heart, and your parents, your upbringing? Tell us about the background here. Yeah, I guess the first time I remember trying to start a business is when I used to jump off ramps with my bike at my where I lived initially, which was near New Haven, Connecticut. I lived there until I was eight. So this must have been when I was six or seven. And I wanted to charge my neighbors to come watch me do a bike show. <laughs> Did you offer a subscription? No. <laughs> I, I was not aware of the subscription. Got to need a monthly on that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, subscription concept was not yet there. Then I remember my father somehow had us do this business. He, was a, he wasn't as a professor where we would make these like art trinkets for I think his grad students because I remember delivering them to his to their mailboxes and I'm pretty sure we sold them for like a quarter a piece or something like that. Wow. Yeah, and that must have been when I was sub 10 years old. And then I think you said your father was a professor, professor actually. Yeah. What, what, a professor of what? Psychology. psychology. Oh, psychology. Okay. That's yeah. A, that's quite interesting, actually. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And well, and there's this, so my father definitely, one of the reasons that he like likes being a professor is he runs his own show. He doesn't really have a boss and he's extremely driven, but he, you know, kind of controls how he channels that energy. And I think that that probably passed on to me because from a... Sounds like an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually realized I went on a program very early in my Mebo days in Washington, D.C. that was just a very few entrepreneurs, mostly PhD candidates. And I remember thinking, wow, these, these PhD candidates, they actually take a lot of risk because most of them will never kind of break through, right? Their theories will never break through, and a very few of them will. And that was kind of the moment when I realized, oh, my father, the professor, who I always used to think of as very risk-averse, 
is actually a lot more like me or I'm a lot more like him than I realized. So I think it's this mix of you have a lot of energy, you have a lot of passion, but you really want to channel it your way. And that might be how I formed as a child. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> to your, the, to your the question thesis, on childhood. No, it, it makes sense. You never thought about actually going down the PhD route or anything. I guess no, you, you God, came no. Out, you know, um, <laughs> no, I, I actually like, didn't. picked up for my father, but I'm not going to no, be my father. Yeah, <laughs> I actually didn't really like school. In the middle of Yale, I found lots of ways to get off campus, get to New York City. And I, I was okay. running a business for like half oh, of really? my time at Yale that was out of New York City. Where were you doing? Where were you doing at Yale on a business? I was running a college consulting company where I was helping high school kids get into good ah. colleges. And it was <laughs> mostly good. based in Queens, New York. I was not interested in stuff that seemed impractical. I wanted like a, this is the way the world actually functions kind of major. And probably the other one that I could have done was economics. But that's pretty much where that formative thing came from. You've done a lot of very practical things, the degree pursuit, practical, more real world versus, you know, ideology focused or high in the sky. Yeah, I think that just comes from spending my time on things that I think will affect other people. If you want to talk about childhood, I don't remember exactly how young I was when I went through the existential crisis of why do I exist and what's the point of life. (laughs) It was like high school or college. And I decided (laughs) for me, it was improve other people's lives because I was kind of born reasonably lucky, like to, you know, kind of a middle class, upper middle class family. And I had a really great education, which my parents helped me get. And so I remember really disliking what I perceived to be injustice. And that injustice was different people of different backgrounds, basically by virtue of who their parents were, like where they were born, getting access to completely different opportunities. Like somehow from a very young age, that rubbed me really the wrong way. Politics never latched on to you to go pursue like a policy direction previously? I thought about it. And the problem that I perceive in that is I wouldn't be able to have enough change. So if you think about what honor does, honor helps older adults you know, age the way they want to age in their homes. But it has this side effect of creating truly, I believe, the best job for home care aides, which we call care professionals. Correct. Like in the country. I I think that- It's control of direct impact. I prefer fast and direct. (laughs) Um, So go start a company that has a good side effect. And then IBM came out, like, I got to get a job. IBM's, you know, right around, kind of down the road, so to speak. And then Corp Dev there for a period of time. That was actually pretty interesting. I literally got rejected by like every single company I applied to. Like I did the classic apply to all the consulting firms and iBanks. Um, and they'd pass me through their first interview, like the, you know, the quick skills based interview. I'd always pass through those. Guy? Right. And then the second interview that, which was more of the personality one, they'd come back and they'd be like, you will be miserable. Like you want to go start a company. You do not want to be like running spreadsheets all day. There's a joke about big blue in here somewhere about like, you know, so you went to IBM, the most flexible. It, I got so unbelievably lucky. I was supposed to run spreadsheets there and I had basically the two best bosses that a kid like me could have possibly oh, wow. had, okay. like unbelievably lucky. And they realized that the wrong way to utilize me was to have me do spreadsheets. And the right way was to let me do things I wasn't supposed to do at my age. And so I think eight months in, I was running my first M&A deal, like end to end. Yeah, they gave me a, a total turd and it turned into a $30 million um, help us make the quarter deal. So I got very, very lucky when I went to IBM. That, had- that's good. So this is the transition to the Valley 
at this point. So yeah. Stanford, which is, I mean, like the timing of you being at Stanford is like a very unique version of Stanford, what that had been historically. Yeah, so. it was. The world had just fallen apart, right? And it was still in a little bit of recovery mode because I got there in 04. And the valley was very oh, wow. dead. But for me, going to Stanford was you have two years to start a company or you failed. So that that was like literally my inbound thing I was saying to myself. Like <laughs> that, your failure is to not start a company before you leave Stanford. And so I ended up starting one in between first and second year. That was Mebo. Uh, we launched it and it just got a lot of traction very quickly. That had like a great trajectory at the yeah. time. And then it yep. went through, and I mean, more importantly, it had trajectory through the great financial crisis it as did. well. I mean, you piloted yeah. all the way left, piloted that all the way up until 2012. Yeah, 2012, 2012 in the when exit. Google yeah. bought it. Yep, that's right. Yeah, I mean, having a company actually go through the great financial crisis and come out the other side, that that in itself is a victory. Yeah, that was <laughs> right tough. There, I remember yeah. we, I actually had to raise around in 2008. And um, <laughs> I still remember Matt Marshall on VentureBeat. He wrote a blog post that was kind of like about a rumor that we were raising money. And he said... Uh, in no his chance. blog post, no I'm, no, you know, he said, I will eat my hat and if they raise you know, money at this valuation. Did you send him a hat? And no. And then like literally a month later when the news came out that we raised that round, he put a picture up of the hat and he was like, I have oh, to wow, eat my good. hat. Yeah. So <laughs> that's good. That's good. So, at, least, at least stood by is what he said. He's like, I can't believe it. They got it done. So yeah. well, I mean, that, that just shows yeah. the, the strength of that model. And then after, then you folded into Google yep. at that mm-hmm. point. What was the transition inside of Google? Yeah. When we got there, Google wanted to acquire Amiibo into Google Plus because we had figured out how to get social widgets embedded throughout websites, like all over the the web at that time. Facebook at the time had a lot of widgets all over the place. Google did not. When I got to Google, the thing that was most important in my mind that Google was missing was actually the identity play across the internet. Um, And so there was kind of sign in with Facebook everywhere, but there was no sign in with Google anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I relaunched that product. So I did that for 18 months, got that launched, got that kind of in good shape. And then I switched over to uh, Google X. And it was fun being at X and seeing the way Google approached innovation. And then I ended up popping out from X to to form Honor. When did the thesis emerge for Honor? Yeah, so the process we ran was kind of like, let's get together on a regular cadence and figure out what we want to actually do and what we'd be passionate about. Our rules of the road for what we would do next, like the second major startup we would do, was we had to be able to look a human in the eye and know we would make their life fundamentally better. It had to be millions of people, not just one. And it had to be something that was hard because we really wanted societal impact and we're second-time entrepreneurs so we can bite off a harder problem that's like a big world problem. So it should be something that uniquely we could do. And we spent 18 months ideating. And really, we were trying to find the space that we were passionate about. Because there's this other issue of being an entrepreneur, which is, I mean, startups are hard. Growth equity but companies You got to be into it. You're yeah. like, I'm going to make a massive time and energy commitment. You will burn out if you're not really yes. passionate about yes. the problem. And so we waited a long time to find the problem we were really passionate about. And then it turned out, because we were just older, because we'd done our first startups, that we were starting to get to the point where we were getting concerned about our parents. And that's how we ended up centering on, let's think about older adults, and then ultimately let's help our parents stay in their homes as they age, because that's what they would really want. And that's been the most impressive thing, uh, kind of transitioning over to Honor, is that there's a core thesis Mm -hmm. at at the base of Honor, which is that you're like the friction elements 
between finding getting great care in the home for an aging adult and then unifying that with a person that wants to provide that care as a, as their profession and making it easy for the care provider and the care recipient which goes beyond what a lot of people assume they say oh it's simple you just you're just matching people i'm like right. <laughs> goes a little bit beyond that like they're yeah. like well i pick my caregiver for my parents you're like can't no. do that you are not good at your parents. <laughs> yeah. You're pretty good yeah. at your kid, but you're not that good at your parents. In fact, Correct. you're yeah. probably so bad at your parents that we formed a rule way early in honor where we require us to do an in-home visit with your parents. It's not enough to just talk to you because you will get it so wrong that when we instantiate care for your mom or dad, we will send the wrong person. We will send the wrong skill set and then things won't go well because you didn't really know the full extent of what your mom or dad actually needed. Yeah, um, so it's because you, you remember your kid, you remember your parents as a kid and you have impressions right. of them as they age. They're not the same person overall. And more importantly, how that you don't take care of them, they took care of you. Yep. So why don't you let us help you with that? Well, and also your parents <laughs> yeah. can frankly be pretty good at hiding stuff from you, right? So when, oh, when, yeah, when they yeah. start to realize that they may have something going on, they're pretty good at not letting you realize that they may start be starting to need help. One of the things that's sort of captivated me is that this is a messy problem. Mm-hmm. This is an extremely data-intensive, muddy world yeah. where you actually have to spend time running this as almost a pilot to gather the right data to understand the problem. Yeah. I would assume that there was not a massive amount of available no. data or concern. You actually had to research this issue. We yeah. wanted to f- help make home care amazing. We didn't know what the real problems were. We knew no agency ever scaled. Like it was an industry that right. that was massive, but without any kind of scale player in it of note uh, on an owned and operated basis. And we had some inbound theories. So we literally just launched an agency with very veneer level technology because we just didn't know what to build. One of the things we found is, you know, the stories in home care are really, really poignant Um, because you can have these stories about amazing relationships between care pros and clients or terrible things that have happened. And those stories cloud people's kind of analysis of what's actually happening. And they're because of the lack of technology platforms and the lack of ability to collect data the stories actually often lead to very incorrect conclusions as to it's like, why. It's like, a it's like literally a cognitive bias issue. Massive. Is that you, it's an anchoring cognitive bias, yeah. you know, hindsight issues, things like the massive amount of behavioral economics and, and you know, like behavioral, uh, like behavioral psychology in there. Yes, so. exactly. And so we have done so much work to just try to get at the real why behind a lot of things that happen in home care. And mm-hmm. even when you get them, I'll tell you, like the industry often says, no, 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 your data must be wrong because they're just the cognitive I feel bias. It doesn't feel right. That's yeah. right. The cognitive bias, as you're saying, is so strong that it's oftentimes hard for people to accept what it look like when you measure it over a thousand or 10,000 instances. This is what it actually looks like. And it's kind of like, no, 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 it must be wrong. <laughs> Like at the end of the day, our bias in analyzing the data is purely so that we can improve our care platform again and again and make it constantly better. I don't think that people, especially at the transformative the transaction that you guys did, you guys recently acquired, merged with Home Instead, who's mm-hmm. the largest franchisor mm-hmm. who provides support services to independent 
care providers and the independent folks still have the same scaling issue that you experienced whenever you were forming Honor. But the actual people, I think when they look at the combined company, they lose track that the amount of actual data and spend behind what you're doing, like now with actually we're delivering, we have one side of us that delivers or has the ability to deliver and facilitate that. And then we have the actual overlay engine and analytics to improve the operations on that side. Yeah. So that, that, I mean, it's like taking the example of agency scale. Now we have massive scale yeah. of data in air. And I, I, I'm assuming the team is just ingesting ma- data analytics team is just yeah. ingesting massive amounts of data right now. Yeah. What's amazing so, is we, yeah. so we now have a, a worldwide network that's over $2 billion, really close to 2.5 billion in GMV. And so we just, we have the largest data set by, you know, probably an order of magnitude in home care, in senior care. And we have it both in the form of the traditional franchise network where it's in, you know, it's a franchisee that is operating their business kind of independently and in the form of the businesses that our care platform supports and runs for those agency owners. So we get different levels of fidelity of data. And then we also see the differences between a business that's run on our care platform with a lot of technology backbone versus a business that's run kind of the traditional way. And it's amazing. Because, because, because within the network, you have folks that are not on the platform that, that should be on the platform it, it, to optimize their performance. So it's it's like an in-house A-B test. Here's one guy that has technology. Here's one guy that doesn't have technology. Even, How do they run? Even down yeah. to the same market, right? So we can look at oh, different wow, okay. agencies within the same market and understand, oh, okay, this is the difference within that market one way versus another way. So it's just incredibly powerful and it kind of lets you get to ground truth. Um, and then with that, you can make the right decisions to ultimately, I mean, ultimately what we have to do is increase society's capacity to care, right? Because we have such a wave of people turning older, right, who will need help, just such a massive wave. Yeah, there's a, there's a big trust bridge. That's one thing that's like, it is beyond the commercial. I guess you can create that trust bridge, but the trust bridge of like people hear about, like here's the care providers, that's a human to human contact touch. And then there's a an engine that runs behind that and having you know, a level of trust built where people actually say like, honor it, it, what they do improves the trust of what, happens to my the person either mm-hmm. myself i'm getting cared for or the people that i'm paying to have cared mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. That, that's a, that, that capacity to care is do you find that you have to fight that or do you or like do you have to sell that or is that more about just making sure that you surf the trend correctly because it's not like down into the right it's up into the right yeah. terms of care demand i yeah. mean a big thing that we've tried to bring to home care is transparency so what you find in many many traditional home care agencies is the you and I, like the sons and daughters, don't have a lot of visibility into what's happening with mom's care, and she may be quite far away. And we're relying on what mom says, which is not always super reliable, especially if she has dementia. So a lot of many features that we built are about providing the sons and daughters more transparency. For example, a wellness check where we'll ask the older adult that we're serving, you know, how many meals have you had in the last 24 hours and what's your state of mind? Are you happy or sad, et cetera? And then we'll report that to the sons and daughters or even something as simple as letting the sons and daughters see, like, here's the care provider who's going, here's their note with an after visit summary, as opposed to being in a spiral brown notebook that's left on the kitchen table. It's now, you know, in your app. So um, that trust probably gets built through transparency with the clients and that goes as much for the care professionals, right? Building trust between them and honor as it goes for the clients, building trust between them and honor. How many door entries 
is the, the combined honor network now up to on like a daily or quarterly basis? Like how many home how many homes are you going into effectively? Probably in a year in America, it's or in a month in America, it's probably in the sixty thousand zone of houses that we would walk into. And then under the brand worldwide, it would be probably another fifty thousand or so. So you're probably at, you know, walking into in a given month in the 100, 110,000 houses zone. On a repetitive basis as well, not... On a repetitive basis, yeah. You're walking yeah, in an, every... You're, yeah. you're walking in either every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Extraordinarily rare that it's not multiple times a week, right? So kind of three Correct. three times a week is usually the minimum that we're walking into a home. I think that this has been my pet statistic with my pet statistic with Honor is that there's organizations that are doing door entries probably more on a huge basis, like others just raw services, non-healthcare oriented. Sure. But in the healthcare space, it would be challenged to find somebody that's doing this kind of in-home work at this scale on a repetitive basis. Yeah. Maybe on the skilled side, something like that. But yeah, this, but this is very the big unique. difference there is their average visit would be you know, 30 or 45 minutes and ours is about six hours. So we're in the average home for 28 hours a week. So we just, we spend so much time with each individual client. Uh, and that is very different. Like that is not something that you tend to find anywhere else in healthcare. Yeah. I mean, there's that kind of home access is just unparalleled. Yeah. So. And, and so I think there are a few things. The goal when we set Honor up was to literally change the way society cares for our parents, like truly fundamentally improve that. And the thing that we have to do on an intermediate basis is expand our capacity to care, right? So today, individual agencies are really capped at how large they can get when they run kind of the traditional human way. They can't serve very many people because from a logistics and ops perspective, they get scaled out very quickly at a pretty small size. And Higher quality care on a higher scale. So that's what we need to do. Like we need to get these agencies to be able to provide care to many, many more people than they currently can today so that we can fix the societal problem of we literally will run out of the capacity care for people who are turning older, which is like a huge issue. Then you think about, okay, well, if we're already in people's homes, how else can we help care for them? Like, how can we take care of their home? How can we take care of their environment? How can we navigate them into the healthcare ecosystem? So let's go beyond just ADL supports. Let's go beyond just, I'm helping you with wrote home care on the on the activities of daily living side into a broader set of services. But like first we just have to get it to a point where society can simply care for the number of people that it needs to care for. Going back to like that's the thesis re-expressing itself. We have a thesis that this is a problem. The solution to the this the thesis is solved through greater caring capacity at a higher quality level. It, you can't take your eye off the that core goal. Because if you don't execute on that, then the rest of it's not scalable. Yeah, so like so the, the not, things yeah. internally, I said to the team, the two things that kind of slow us down, so to speak, like the caps on our growth are quality and ethics. We cannot break ethics. We cannot break quality, right? As long as yep. we have those two things, then we can keep growing at whatever rate we are able to grow at. And that's super important because we do need to fix this problem for society that is, I see it as kind of laying the plumbing, right? It's laying the pipes to then ultimately be able to do much more around caring for older adults than just home care. 
I don't think I've, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time in healthcare. I just wrote that down. I, I don't think I've ever heard express that growth limitation expressed in quite that way before. I think that's actually just to point out the little, the little algorithm you came up here, the quality ethics, and I added in transparency. Because you're yeah. doing something in healthcare in general is just so operational. And it is easy to outscale your ability to serve people. And coming back around full circle here, born of a household of thesis and independent mindedness, and then into several paths through entrepreneurial, but you've been also successful in managing. Do you actually think of yourself as like a creator entrepreneur or a growth operator? It's a good question. All of the founders are always watching for when we think our skill sets may scale out. And when I scale out is either because I see that my skill set is becoming not appropriate for what I need to do, or when I lose interest in the job that I have to do, and so therefore I would not do it well. So those are two ways that you can scale out. On the skill set side, the thing that I need to keep me going is the core skill set of always hiring people who are much better at a given job or role than I am. So I literally describe it as people on my team who report directly to me. They have to be like fundamentally better at their job or their role or their area than I am. Um, and if that's true, then they're a really good person to have in that role. Um, that allows me to scale, right? Because I, I can't do the things that people who report to me do, right? Those people could potentially be scaling out, which, you know, if you have the right people, they kind of self-reflect and self-recognize on that. And then you find someone else who's more appropriate for another stage of the company. I think now you're beginning to bring in more and more people, especially as the organization's got really big, yeah. the, 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 like more and more people to augment and bring that back. It sounds that you've become actually more into the core thesis. Now you're coming back to what are the problems that we need to be focused on solving here? Now that the organization is scaling, I'm augmenting my capabilities here or bringing on people that are building a better team. Bringing on amazing talent is probably or almost certainly my number one focus and has been for the last probably six months like that's that's effectively been it the first six months post building. post yeah. you know purchasing home instead was just the integration of the two companies and making sure they work together the right way the second phase has been okay we are at really massive scale now. Like we are by far having the most advanced technology around older adults, caring for older adults in the world, running a distributed labor force that cares for older adults. So we have this amazing set of you know assets now, right? Brand, distribution, uh, employees, et cetera. And it is on us to leverage those to improve the way society cares for older adults, right? But we we best, have them. Best talent. Best talent for the best problem. Best talent for the best problem. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's the last little bit here is, so I've definitely taken like multiple calls with you where you're like on a bike <laughs> and you're like pedaling somewhere. So like, I, like I've never really delved into this before, but is cycling, is this a side hobby, a deep passion, you know, something that I, I do every morning for four hours? Like where, where are we at on the where are we at on the scale of uh, cycling, love is psychosis? Yeah, cycling's high on the list. I mean, I, I kind of say I have time for three things in life and family and honor are the two defaults. And so there's one more. And the one other is basically making sure I stay in kind of physical shape. And as a kid, I'd get on the bike and disappear when I was 10 or 12. Wow. And then I probably have been doing a lot, like really long distance, you know, 
40 miles would be a normal ride. A, a weekday morning would be like 20 miles with 2,000 feet of climb, and a big ride would be 60 miles with 6,000 feet. And mm-hmm. that started maybe 10 years ago now. It's a lot of vert. It's actually. a lot of, yeah, I like climbing. <laughs> I, I prefer, yeah. I was yeah. going to say, that's like amazing. Well, I, I appreciate Thanks for taking the time today. It's been it's been great. And uh, hopefully the, the audience learned a little bit more about yourself and kind of the, the thinking that led up to and is continues to lead the the absolutely fantastic success at Honor, which is, I, I think, a very, like we said, it's a thesis. It's an important thesis that needs to be solved in a very real way. And Honor's t- taking that on. So. We're working on Thanks for bringing me on this. That has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Perspectives podcast. If you are interested in participating in future podcasts or would like to learn more about SVB Securities, please email us at info at svbsecurities.com. 